I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hey, folks, it's Luke. Stay where you are because coming up, author Karen Carbo shares advice from the great Julia Child, who, according to her diary, never let her unusual height get in the way of a good time. Why languish as a giantess when it's so much more fun to be a myth? Well, this is the show that um, didn't actually realize that bottle of wine was for cooking, not um, drinking. This is... Livewire! From the beautiful Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, it's Livewire. With Julia Child, biographer Karen Carbo, Margaret Sanger, biographer Peter Bag, and music from Old Light. All that plus comedy from our troupe, the artists formerly known as Artists, and our house band led by Mr. Ralph Huntley. Welcome to another week of Live Wire Radio, recorded as always in front of a crowd of beautiful public radio listeners at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. This week, we talk to author Karen Carbo about the life lessons one can gain from observing Julia Child. She was a kind of woman that didn't sort of travel the world with any obvious female charms, and yet... She had admirers, she had a fabulous marriage, and she became rich, famous, and celebrated. Cartoonist Peter Bagg stops by to talk about a kind of unlikely topic for a graphic novel. Birth control pioneer Margaret Sanger, who was also, you might not know, an early practitioner of the free love movement. She lost her virginity while in high school uh, to some guy that she convinced she would be willing to marry. It's got quite a flip of the usual story. And from Margaret Sanger to the sort of anti-Sangers, we'll chat with my actual parents who had seven kids. Actually, believe it or not, had we not practiced some kind of birth control, we would have been maybe a dozen kids. Yeah, that is my actual mother. Now, of course, Margaret Sanger is known for sort of coining the term birth control in this country. Uh, which was not a term or a thing really being utilized in the household that I grew up in, as you just heard. Um, But that actually wasn't such a bad thing for me coming up in this huge family, which I was telling the crowd at the Alberta Rose Theater uh, as we got things started. Take a listen. Uh, When you tell somebody that you're having 
like your second kid, they say yay, but if you tell them that you're working on number seven, they slowly back away <laughs> from the obvious insane person that they have been talking to. It's weird growing up with that many kids. The house that we grew up in was not set up for this. My parents really, on paper, kind of had no business having seven kids. Like, we didn't have a lot of money. We had one bathroom in the entire house growing up. For, for a period of time, four of my sisters slept in the same room. It was bunk bed and then a trundle bed under the bunk bed and then a crib in the same room. But then I found that golden ticket in that chocolate bar and things really turned around for the Burbanks. No, I mean, it sounds like a made-up thing, but that was actually our life. We were this big, kind of wild, noisy, loving, crazy family. And, you know, it just the things that I learned growing up in this family are things that have still sort of stuck with me. My mom was really good at figuring out how to stretch a dollar, and she would come up with these schemes, like she would go to the grocery store, and she would find all the milk that was about to expire. And she would go to the dairy manager, and she would, like, make him an offer... And then she would bring home all of this milk, and then she would freeze it. And the problem was she would not usually remember to thaw it out until it was like five minutes before we had to go to school. So you'd be like picking Cheerios off of a giant frozen block of ice milk. My sister, Elizabeth, is here tonight. She will attest that all of these things that I'm saying are completely true. And, I mean... Basically, uh, this was a terrible idea for my parents to have all of these kids, and yet it was, for us, the perfect preparation for trying to grow up and be sort of productive adult humans. You know, everything that I sort of have going for me today is because of the environment that I was raised in. You know, if you were going to tell a story at our dinner table and try to keep the attention of that many people, you need to bring your A game, right? <laughs> Which I learned as a, as a very young child. So, I mean, we probably looked like insane people. Our family, we would pull up in this Ford Fairmont station wagon, and there would just be like hundreds of kids pouring out of the way, way back. Remember when the way, way back was a thing? Everybody in this room got a ride somewhere in the way, way back, and now I think it's probably considered child abuse. Um, so I guess I just have to say... Big ups to my parents, who unintentionally created this great environment, totally in disregard to the hard work of Margaret Sanger and people like her. But without even meaning to, they created this sort of perfect environment for, for us to learn how to be around people and how to be tolerant and how to um, just sort of you know, make it in this world. Because it turns out if you can survive being one of seven kids, being a grown-up is actually kind of a piece of cake. All right, let's do this radio show, you guys. What do you say? Tonight on a historical point-counterpoint, we offer a timeline of the life of reproductive rights activist Margaret Sanger, in direct counterpoint to the timeline of the life of the famed father of misogyny, Jim T. Humboldt. September 14, 1879. Margaret Higgins is born in Corning, New York, Margaret's mother had 18 pregnancies and 11 children, coloring Margaret's view of pregnancy and birth control forever. April 18, 1880. Jim Humboldt was born the 24th child to Mormon parents in Hannibal, Missouri. His first words were that his mother's womb wasn't all it was cracked up to be. 1902. 
Margaret Higgins marries architect William Sanger. 1903. Jim is the first man to use the negging technique in bars, telling women their bustles make their butts look big and their hoop skirts give the impression of thick legs. 1912. Margaret, now a nurse, writes a women's health column for the New York Call, entitled, What Every Girl Should Know. March 3rd, 1913. Humboldt attends the National Women's Suffrage Procession to pick up women. When his attempts fail, he dubs all 8,000 marchers and 26 floats a bunch of lesbos. 1923, Sanger founds the American Birth Control League, what would later become Planned Parenthood. 1924, Jim Humboldt constructs the first ever glass ceiling, which he places above his business. Selling films of university women lifting their skirts above the ankle called Ladies Gone Looney. September 6, 1966. After helping to fund studies on the first birth control pill, Sanger dies at the age of 86. September 7, 1970. When told on his deathbed that he didn't have much time to live and that, quote, death is pretty hard to swallow, Humboldt uttered his final words. That's what she said. These words would be echoed by generations of bags to come. This has been Historical Point Counterpoint with Livewire Radio. Andrew Harris, Laura Faye Smith, and Sean McGrath. Okay, coming up, the actual story of Margaret Sanger. This one from cartoonist Peter Bagg. You are listening to Livewire. We'll be back in just a minute. Welcome back to Live Wire Radio. Many people know Margaret Sanger as the mother of birth control in America, the founder of what became Planned Parenthood, but lots of people don't know she was also an early adopter of the free love movement, and that she had to flee the country to avoid arrest, or that she played a role in the development of the first birth control pill. Author and illustrator Peter Bagg has set about to remedying that with his recent graphic biography of Sanger, which some critics are calling his best work to date. Please welcome the author of Woman Rebel, The Margaret Sanger Story, Peter Bagg to Livewire. Peter? Hi, that was very educational, that point-counterpoint. I learned a lot about yeah, the... Yeah, you didn't get into that uh, in your book. The inventor of the glass ceiling. <laughs> 
I don't want to get this interview off on the wrong foot right out of the gate, but you... You want to wait a while. <laughs> yeah, I usually wait till about a third of the way into the interview to alienate the guest. Okay. You seem like an unlikely person to write this book about Margaret Sanger. How did you become interested in her? I started writing for a while. I've been writing sh very short bios, like one-page comic strips about various historical figures. I became particularly interested at one point with uh, authors and political theorists from the mid-20th century, and mainly because I couldn't help but notice what free, autonomous lives they lived, but, uh, which I thought was remarkable for the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. But then I couldn't help but notice that part of the reason it was so freewheeling, these women's lives, is uh, they weren't burdened with babies and unwanted pregnancies. So that got me interested in what uh, type of birth control was available back then, which kept taking me to Margaret Sanger. What was um, the free love movement, and how did she practice that in her own life? Um, I guess she always felt that way, going all the way back to her <laughs> teenage years, when she, um, even though she came from a poor family, her older sisters, paid, they wanted her to get out of this horrible small town that she lived in. She went to a private school in high school and immediately started writing about women's suffrage and writing essays denouncing the institution of marriage. She lost her virginity while in high school uh, to some guy that she convinced she would be willing to marry. <laughs> it's got quite a flip of the usual story. <laughs> well, like if a dude did that, we wouldn't be applauding. <laughs> because it's Margaret Sager, we're like, you go, girl. <laughs> Lying right. to that guy to get him in the sack. There you go. Toad's cool. <laughs> yes. But I don't think he cried for very long. Right, right. Um... So she was, very, she was very sexually liberated. Yes, she, uh, boy, she, in many ways she was very conventional. She, uh, she had very Victorian attitudes. She was a mass of contradictions. Uh, no interest in women, was against masturbation, whatever that means. Um, although that was like, that was, at least outwardly, that's what everybody used to say that uh, back then, if you were educated is that masturbation is bad for you. I, it's hard to believe she was such a sexual person. I find it hard to believe that she never masturbated. But uh, she just, uh, she, well, her thing was she wanted to have sex with a lot of very smart men. That was her, that was her trip. And she did. And, uh, well, and when she first got married, the man that proposed to her, he, uh, Bill Sanger, because her maiden name is Higgins, uh, he was very aggressive about getting married. He really was madly in love with her. He was a handsome man. He had a good career going. I'm sure all of her friends are like, what do you mean you're not going to marry him? And she lived a very conventional, middle-class, suburban life for about 10 years. And then... Didn't her house burn down? Um, it did. She took that as a sign uh, <laughs> to uh, get the hell out of the burbs. And, um, and so they did move back to the, into the city, became much... They always were politically very progressive. They were in the Socialist Party. But uh, she resumed her uh, nursing career. Um, but, yes, yeah, she, uh, she went to a, uh, a lecture given by Emma Goldman about free love, not just what it is, but how it works, how to find the right partners, all of that sort of thing, and... Uh, they were both morally approved of this whole concept of free love, but her husband was like, this isn't for me, though, but it was very much for her. Uh, this is Livewire Radio. We're talking to Peter Bagg. Uh, his new book uh, is about Margaret Sanger, and 
I think it's such a great way. I really enjoyed reading the book, and I thought it was such a great way to transmit historical facts and also to convey the emotion of the people, including Margaret Sanger, in the sort of story. And I thought, why aren't there more works of, of, of history that are treated in this fashion? Is it because people think that comics are a joke? Right, and I, when I read about Margaret Sanger's life, it was, first of all, it literally was action-packed. I thought this is very much a comic book. She wasn't just somebody that sat behind a typewriter. Um, she did a lot. It was a very active life. It was very visual. It very much lent itself to a graphic novel biography. And also many things that I read about her because of, she was such a mass of contradictions. I thought she was funny. I thought a lot of things were hilarious that happened in her life. Um, when I started out dabbling in doing biographical comics. At first, I did these short strips about the Founding Fathers, who I've always been interested in. I thought, you know, I have great respect for them. But when I'd be at home, like in bed, reading, the, like reading a biography of John Adams, I kept laughing. And my wife was like, why? What's so funny about John Adams? I go, everything. This, everything hurts this guy's feelings. He's, <laughs> he's such a mess. I thought he was hilarious, even though he was brilliant. I just could not stop. He was a cartoon character. I, just, I was like, all of them were. They all were do cartoon characters. Do you do characters. that sort of instinctively now because of how long you've been drawing cartoons and creating cartoons? Or has that been the way your brain has always it's worked? It's just the way my brain works. I always seem the lud- I see the ludicrous in everybody whenever I read a biography. It, no matter how much I might admire the person, I, I'm always... It almost seems like the more that I admire them, the more I laugh. Because then you're more interested when you admire them, you're more interested in them, and you dig deeper. And by digging deeper, you just find all these ludicrous inconsistencies. Well, speaking of inconsistencies, or at least something that has definitely dogged Margaret Sanger, if you bring her name up, the casual person who's casually aware of her will say, wasn't she into eugenics? What's, what's the actual story with that? These days, eugenics, it's a very sad case of historical illiteracy. People pretty much assume it's synonymous with Nazism. When it started out, there were some people who attached racial preferences to it, but the whole idea... Eugenics means um, good genes in Greek, and it was just a way to make sure that the future generations, your children, would be smarter and healthier than you were. So a lot of it was just basically health-based. Prenatal care was part of the eugenics movement, and she actually rather shamelessly latched her movement onto the eugenics movement because, believe it or not, eugenics was a respectable science and birth control wasn't. People thought her whole cause was a little bit nasty and gross. So she was trying to give it some academic legitimacy by very deliberately attaching it to the eugenics movement. Also, leading eugenicists, also, they accused her of uh, not really caring about improving America's gene pool and that she just cared about female autonomy. And her critics were 100% correct. Why was Margaret Sanger so essential? She was utterly fearless. She was willing to go to jail. She was willing to die. She was absolutely fearless, but she also was very smart. The fact that she didn't die (laughs) and the fact that she never spent very much time in jail, even though she had been arrested many times, goes to show how clever she was. And she just knew that she was on the right track. Now you're hard-pressed to find anybody who will at least publicly say they're against birth control, but this was a raging debate. She used to go to jail for it. Yeah. my Being from a family of seven kids, people always say, oh, your parents Catholic or Mormon? And for me, it's interesting because they're they're not either, and they actually believe in birth control. They're just horrible at it. Okay. So... (laughs) 
so bad. Well, you know, it. you know what you call a couple who practice the rhythm method. Yeah, that's you call the, them parents. That's why I'm here today. Yes, because of the rhythm method. <laughs> Peter Bag's new book is about Margaret Sanger. Pick it up, Amazon.com bookstores near Peter. Thank you so much for being on Livewire. Thank you. Peter Bag on the life of Margaret Sanger. This is Livewire Radio. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. Now, earlier in the show, I mentioned that I am actually the oldest of seven kids, uh, meaning uh, my mom and dad were really sort of doing their own anti-Margaret Sanger movement in Washington State, where I grew up. Um, and I have to say, it was great to grow up in that big family, but I would never, and I mean never, have that many kids myself. And I was kind of wondering what drove my parents to want to do this. And I figured who better to answer that question than my actual parents, Walter and Susie Burbank of Silverdale, Washington. Hello. Hey, mom. Hi, Luke. Um, is dad on the other line? Yes, he's right here, Luke. Hey, dad. How are you? Good. What you got cooking? Well, on this week's Livewire show, we are talking about a woman named Margaret Sanger. Have you ever heard the name Margaret Sanger, you guys? Um, the name doesn't sound familiar, but what's the uh, story? That's actually uh, not a huge surprise to me because she is um, kind of the woman who's credited with really pushing the idea of birth control uh, in uh, the United States, which is something you guys were not super good at. <laughs> no. Um, well, you know, I was talking about it with your dad. Are you interviewing us right now? I mean, this is, I mean, I'm recording. Well, my life changed when you were born from it being all about me to being all about somebody else. And that was huge. I never looked at the, the size of, the, of our family or uh, how many number of kids we were going to have as, as a conscious, like, okay, it's time to stop now. You know, each new child was really a, an amazing new adventure. Um, and so I, I never saw it as something like, oh, well, we'd better stop. Until obviously later on, it was just like, what is going on? Mom, when you would realize that you were maybe pregnant again, uh -huh. and now you guys are into kid number five, kid number six, kid number seven, would you feel nervous when you were like walking over to dad's shop to like deliver the news? <laughs> I don't think I was, except I got two responses from the kids. The first one was, Mom, you're too old to have another baby. And I said, yeah, you're right on that account. And then the second one was, Mom, we can't afford another baby. And I said, you're right on both counts, but we're keeping this baby. So wait, the kids were telling you that this was a pretty bad idea. Yes. <laughs> Dad, Dad, what was your reaction? We never looked at the finances of, of a large family as, as any real issue because uh, by that point, the older kids were helping to take care of the younger ones, and that was our life. We were, as far as our identity went, you know, a large family. And people looked at us with a sense of awe and like, you know, wow, you guys are really amazing. And that sort of, I mean, maybe it fed it, but it, it sort of reassured us that, that you guys, you were not an accident. Uh, you were not, um, you know, some problem that we had. It was like, this was our life. Did you guys ever get a surprising response from other people? Like, I mean, were there people that were ever like, what are you doing? Like, yeah, not in a nice way, but we're just... members from your, oh, yeah, your granddad, your dad's dad. Oh, he was very much, he was, he couldn't believe, um, I talked to him on the phone and he couldn't even hardly talk to me. He criticized uh, us for having a large family. Actually, believe it or not, 
Had we not practiced some kind of birth control, we would have been maybe a dozen kids. Uh, the day before, uh, Mom was talking about how that she's going to miss, you know, having little children uh, around the house and in her life and stuff. I do miss that. I miss when you guys were all young. And we were talking about when we used to go to the mall at Northgate, and Dad would buy that one little bag of white chocolate drops. And there was something about just one bag of candy, and he would give you one at a time, and we would have the time of our lives walking the length of the mall, and they, you know, especially the younger ones, would come running back like little bunny rabbits to your dad for another chocolate, you know, another white chocolate. And this would be like an hour of fun walking around the mall. Uh... And remember what I would say, I'd say, see what's in style, and then we know what to look for in the thrift store. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I just want to say to you guys, you know, thanks for having so many kids and making such an awesome family. And you guys were just sort of willing to just experience whatever it was life brought along with all these kids, because it certainly made a really fun experience growing up for me. So thanks, you guys. You're Good welcome. Our pleasure. We love you. Love you, too. All right. Okay. Talk to you guys later. All right. Okay. Bye, hon. Bye. Yes, indeed. My parents... Walter and Susie Burbank. It's always odd when your mother, who gave birth to eight children, tells you that that was the result of them trying to use birth control. I, uh, I can't say that it's something I would ever choose for my life, but then again, I had a baby when I was 17, so... I guess maybe that cures you of it early. This is Live Wire Radio. Let's head back to the Alberta Rose Theater and hear some music from the amazing Portland band Old Light. The Willamette Week has described tonight's band as a cage match between Robbie Robertson, Jim James, Brian Wilson, and Neil Young, in which no winner is declared and all parties involved deny using anabolic steroids. They just recorded five albums that they released as a cassette box set. And we just got done testing their urine backstage. Please welcome Old Light to Livewire.
That's Old Light. Their latest cassette is Ocean Waves. The Livewire podcast is sponsored by Ergo Depot, a company committed to healthy furniture and healthy communities. On the furniture end of things, they've got an entire line of sit, stand, desks, and ergonomically designed chairs to keep your spine from feeling like an unattractively shaped pretzel. And on the community side, they'll match any charitable donation to Livewire or any nonprofit for 30 days after the purchase of said chair or desk. That's what's known as putting your money where your healthy spine is, or whatever they say. Find out more information at ergodepot.com. It's estimated that three out of four $100 bills contain traces of cocaine. For the past three years, DEA Division TS-103 has been testing U.S. currency and extracting cocaine from the bills. On October 20th, the DEA announced it was closing down Division TS-103 due to a lack of testing efficacy. Ted Callahan is the senior forensic chemist at the DEA's Western Field Lab. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, job. Good job. Real good job. Hey, that's a nice sweater, by the way. What is that, a blue? I got one in blue. Sort of like a nice blue, like a, like ice blue, like what, topaz maybe, an aqua? Aqua? Okay, okay. Um, so what's the smallest amount of cocaine you've been able to detect? <sighs> well, the machines can detect like 0.32 milligrams or whatever, but uh, me personally, I can detect like as little as 0.25 milligrams. <sighs> that's on a bad day, too. <laughs> My teeth feel so sharp right now. Are they sharp? Can you see? Uh, what <laughs> methods are you using? Methods, uh, all sorts of methods, you know, compounds and uh, ammonium nitrate and chloroform. Mostly I do it the old-fashioned way, you know what I mean? I get really close to the bills, like really close with my face. Okay, Ted, um, can you think of any... Uh, all right, what are you doing? <sighs> Jumping jacks. I do these all the time. I spend a lot of time, you know, like hunched over a table and I have all this extra energy and I don't want to do what to do with it. I just got to do it some jumping jacks. <sighs> Is it difficult work? No, 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 no. It's best job ever. It's best job ever. Like, ever! Um, are there any health concerns? What? No, 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 no. I mean, like, I've had a runny nose for, like, uh, three years, and I taste aspirin all the time, and sometimes I get really paranoid for no apparent reason, and, but the upside, I've lost, like, 15 pounds, and I don't even drink coffee anymore. I don't need it. I don't need coffee. Okay, um, well, now that this project is scheduled to be shut down, what are your thoughts for the future of drug detection? You know what? This is important work, okay? And if the DEA doesn't want to do it, then, then I'm going to do it. I'm going to start a home office at my home that has an address and has a six in it, and I'll have a website. I'll learn HTML. I'll have a phone number to call. Do people have phone numbers anymore? It doesn't matter. Let's do this. I'm going to run around the building. I'll be right back. At the DA's Western Field Lab in San Francisco, this is Glenda Muldoon for Pennsylvania Public Radio. Sean McGrath and Laura Faye Smith. If we can become better people by researching and writing about great people, then author Karen Carbo might be approaching perfect personhood. Having written best-selling guides to life based on the stories of Georgia O'Keeffe, Coco Chanel, and Catherine Hepburn, her latest Julia Child Rules, Lessons on Savoring Life, looks to the carefree and somewhat martini-soaked wisdom of one of America's best-loved and tallest cooks. Please welcome Karen Carbo to Livewire. Karen, welcome to the show. Hi, Luke. How are you? I'm well. I really enjoyed this uh, book, and so much has been written about Julia Child, and there's a film that was made, you know, not that long ago about her, but 
You really got into just how much she loved alcohol, which resonated with me. That was the main point of writing the book, actually. You opened the book talking about her and her, I guess, soon-to-be husband driving around with a thermos of martinis rattling sure. around in the back of the car. No open container laws in um, the 40s, it turns out. Um, why did you decide to write about Julia Child? What was it about her that really kind of jumped out to you? Well, I know, I mean, yes, everyone apparently has written about Julia Child. And um, when I've been doing interviews, people have said, once Meryl Streep has played you in a movie, there is nothing left to say about your life. So beware, listeners. Um, no, I Julia, feel like that's a good problem to have. It's a good problem to have. So Meryl beware, Streep Luke. played you in a movie. Exactly. Now There's it's all downhill from there. That's yeah. right. Um, no, Julia was someone, um, I'm a native Californian, as in she, and she grew up, um, we grew up about 15 miles away from each other. Um, and I was always inspired, frankly, by the fact that she was an enormous Californian that made good in Paris, France. She was easily, she was six foot three, actually. Um, she would shave an inch off her height as if being six foot two would, you know, make You know, her- it's funny, I looked that up today online and it said six two, and I thought, that's not that tall, but six three, that's tall. Yes. Easily. I mean, that's pretty tall. Easily one foot taller than every Parisian in that, in that time. So I was inspired by that and also really inspired that she was a kind of woman that didn't sort of travel the world with any obvious female charms. And yet she had admirers, she had a fabulous marriage, and she became rich, famous, and celebrated. Yeah, she really played by her own rules, you write. I mean, she got married really late in life sure. uh, by the standards of the day, right? Yes, absolutely. She was um, in her 30s, and the average age for matrimony in those days was 21. So she was quite the old maid. How did she become a television star? Because as you mentioned, she was an unlikely woman to become the television personality that she, she became. Right. Well, it was on, she had published Mastering the Art of French Cooking and had gone on a book chat show um, WGBH Boston, which had about 27 viewers at the time. This was pre-PBS. Pre, um, and she thought, you know, this is silly. I'm going to come and what am I going to do, read my recipes? So she had the idea of making an omelet for the host. And she brought a bowl and an egg and a whisk and a little camp stove and made an omelet. And all 27 viewers chose to write in saying, this was amazing that we saw how to make an omelet on TV. So they, they ordered three episodes of The French Chef, um, and that was, that was the beginning. Um, one of the things that you write about Julia Child is her just incredible effervescence and her, her, her playfulness, even into her 80s. But she right. also grew up, I didn't know until I read the book, she grew up really privileged. She had a butler and a cook and a gardener, and she ended up with a TV show, and she had this great marriage. It seems like it's easy to be happy when that stuff is working out for you. What do we, the normals, well, take away from this? That's true, but you must remember that um, her, even though she was privileged, she broke with her father, who, um, well, remember the movie Chinatown? Mm-hmm. He, he was sort of involved in the water rights thing in Los Angeles, and he was a little right of the John Birch Society. So she broke with him, and actually they um, had a very troubled relationship because she married someone who was an intellectual who spoke French and wore an ascot and was therefore a communist. So even though she came from privilege, she had a dysfunctional relationship with her parents, as do many of us. So. I, I was 
I was sort of going down a Julia Child rabbit hole today, and I noticed that at one point, I don't know if it was a Valentine's Day card, but her and her husband, in their, like, 50s, sent out a card to people where they're in a bathtub together, just covered in soap. Right. It was Wish You Were Here. Yeah, they were in Plotzdorf, Germany. He was posted there, and they were in a little bubble bath looking coyly at one another. They did. They sent out Valentine's Day cards It's pretty upsetting year. to look at. Well, you know... <laughs> You need to live with abandon more, Luke, which is rule number one. Well, and actually, coming up in a minute, we're going to have Courtney Hommeister out here who's been trying to live some of the rules of a Julia Child. Um, first, though, can you read a little from the I, book, I Karen? would love to. Thanks. This is Karen Carbo reading from her new book, Julia Child Rules, Lessons on Savoring Life, here on Livewire Radio. Every generation imprints on a slightly different Julia. The first knew her as the serious, exacting author of The Exhaustive Mastering the Art of French Cooking, Volume 1, while its younger sisters grew attached to the slightly goofy cheerleader known as the French chef, first in black and white, then in color. The Julia of the late 1970s was the one immortalized in Dan Aykroyd's iconic Saturday Night Life impersonation. Save the liver! That's not in the book. That was me ad-libbing. Her resultant, vaguely Monty Python-esque reputation had no hope of being rehabilitated by the short, perky spot she then did on Good Morning America and the often awkward cooking shows that never quite lived up to the French chef. There was a half decade or so near the end of the 20th century when she fell off the radar. Then Julie Powell, a girl in a dead-end job looking to give her life meaning, single-handedly engineered a Julia comeback by cooking and blogging her way through mastering the art of French cooking. Her Julie and Julia, which served as the inspiration and template for Nora Ephron's movie of the same name, reintroduced Julia to a whole new, hip, home-cooking crowd. But for most of us, Julia is primarily and always the French chef. TV Julia was organized, efficient, yet breezy with her kooky warble, effortless confidence, and endearingly never-quite-right hairdo. Chopping onions, grating cheese, whacking frozen pastry crust with a wooden dowel, giving pointers on the wrist action involved in flipping an omelet, and demonstrating with glee the fascinating, mildly revolting innards of a lobster. <laughs> she came off as a woman not unlike her viewers, who before she became famous was cozily married to a nice man who went off to his government job every morning while she, in pearls and twin set, puttered around the kitchen. She spent her hours grocery shopping, preparing meals for her husband, hosting dinner parties for his business associates, writing newsy letters to friends and family, purchasing copper saucepans, and when she had the time, catching up on her magazines. Julia was every woman. If every woman could thrive in Paris despite speaking almost no French, eat everything she pleased, put in 14-hour days for years on end, creating a cookbook for which there was, as far as anyone could tell, no market, and deep into middle age, train herself to cook, instruct, and entertain in front of the camera, something for which in 1963 there was little precedent and no official handbook. Which is to say that, however average and normal she may have looked, she was like no one else. Karen Carbo. Now, I know that a number of people have been kind of taking on this challenge, right, of right. adopting some of these principles, some of these Julia Child life lessons that are laid out in the book, and then applying them to their own life. And we actually have just such a test subject here. It's our head writer, Courtney Hameister. Please welcome her to the stage. 
Hi. Hey All right. there. So, Court. Yes. What What exactly have you been doing to get your groove back? <laughs> or keep your groove? Or I don't um, know what part of your groove you're in currently, but I don't, what are you yeah. doing with this, with this book and this project? Um, so, so what I, um, so what I wanted to do was just kind of take one of the chapters and try to, try to, try to live one of the rules. And I didn't want to, um, I didn't want to change my life significantly. I wanted to just see what it would be like if I just sort of held some of these ideas in my head. And it's funny because, you know, one of the ideas is indulge your whims. And, um, that's really good advice for anyone who doesn't have a problem with impulse control. Um, so. (laughs) Which category are you in? <laughs> I'm in the people who have. I mean, I I love food, and Karen actually mentions this in the book. Like, it's not a good idea to indulge all your whims if if you've got a problem with that. But it's sort of deciding. You know, it's like indulge your whims, but don't have a Kit Kat for breakfast, which I did do on day four. Right. Because there's like a guy who steals a cop car with no shirt on, high on meth. He's indulging his whims, if you think he about is. it, strictly speaking. He's living like Julia, but it's his version of <laughs> right. it. Um, There's room for everyone's interpretation. Exactly, exactly. So, um, so I just had three. I just had three rules that, um, and 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 certainly I I did a bunch of stuff over the week, but these were the three that I really um, that I that I thought illustrated these rules best. One was make it up as you go along. Was was one of her rules. And um, I have never made an omelet in my life, and which I know is kind of odd, but it always struck me as kind of scary. And and like I didn't understand how the egg on the top would. It's just essentially a recipe for salmonella, as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. How do you do that? And so, and so I, so I decided to make to make an omelet. That's and I was crazy, <laughs> right? Crazy. I was inspired by you know. There's this there's this part in the book where she talks about how Julia Child, you know, totally screws up an omelet, and in fact, it goes all over the stove. And she says, "What's great about when you're cooking is that you're generally doing it alone, and so no one can see when you just pick it up off of of the stove and plop it right back in." And um, <laughs> so that was you know, and that's kind of what happened. Like it was a. It was very different from the YouTube ladies omelet, but um, and so it was a, it was a it was a wreck. But I, you know, and and so and and I and I had to reopen it because I forgot to put the basil in, and so it was completely ripped and ugly. But again, lesson from Julia: flip that sucker over, yeah. and it's beautiful, right? So that was that was was it making it up as you go along? Was that the principle you making were making up as you go along? Yeah, it's okay. just doing you know doing with uh, doing and the best it, with and what also you have. it could be scrambled eggs in a exactly. pinch. Exactly, and the thing is, it would have tasted you know, great regardless. Yeah. And so this was, and this applies to other things, you know, if you sleep with the wrong person in the morning, just flip them over and you yeah. can imagine that that was a good choice you made. <laughs> flip them over to the pretty side. Um, is that, is that the person listed as scrambled eggs in your phone contacts? <laughs> yeah. I was yeah. wondering who it's ringing over on the side of the stage. Right. I keep seeing that come up. Um, yeah. Okay, so what else did you what else did you embrace this week? <laughs> so this was actually this was my favorite thing that happened all week. Um, one of Julia's rules is be amused, and and what that's about is um, learning to be amused instead of frustrated by by things um, because the world is a frustrating place, and so. Um, I actually, at one point during the week, got a wrong number text. And any other week, I would have just texted back, you have the wrong number. But this was my follow your whims, live with abandon week. So I, he said, hey, it's Sam. And my reply was, hey, Sam, Sam who? Because I know a couple Sams. Please let this be the former mayor of Portland. <laughs> That's what? <laughs> he may have been texting me. Booty call from Sam Adams. Um, uh, no, uh, 
So I said, hey, Sam, And, and Sam, by the no. way, he would be the wrong person for you to be sleeping with. He would. <laughs> in so many ways. In so many ways. My beard has not grown in enough <laughs> yeah. to be attractive to him. Um, but it almost has. It almost has. <laughs> so what did you do? Did so you... I said, uh, so he said, so, so he gave me his last name and he said, you know, I'm in yo class, is what he said. Oh. Uh. And so instead of saying, you have the wrong number, I said, ah, what can I do for you, Sam? <laughs> and That might be identity theft. But this was his response. <laughs> his response was, oh, you know, just wanting to know if you wanted to see bad grandpa with me. <laughs> and I was, and I thought, no, no longer amused, I'm your right? teacher? I'm your teacher and you're asking me, I'm, you're asking me to go see a movie. So I, I, I replied, it looks funny, but I'm not sure that would be appropriate since I'm your teacher. Um, <laughs> And he, and he said, I felt terrible when I got this one. Oh, sorry, professor. I thought it would be something relevant to class. And, um, oh, but also, what class is yeah. a Johnny Knoxville film relevant yeah. to? This is definitely at DeVry University where <laughs> exactly. these kinds of texts are being sent. Well, it turns out it, turns out it was an acting class. And I told him what I had done. And, and he actually, he was, he was very sweet about it. And he thought it was very funny. Um, and I did give him advice. I mean, I said, you know, good luck with your professor. And I really hope she buys that whole relevant to the class story. Because, come on. Um, but I was, it was really cute. And it was incredibly entertaining. And, and any other day, it would have just been this sort of, you know, kind of annoying, tiny little piece of my day. And it turned out to be sort of a highlight, you know. Wow. And it was really fun. So, uh, so that was so. So that's just sort of turned into my rule number two, which is never reveal that someone has the wrong number when they text you. Right. Um, <clears throat> moving forward. I'm glad you didn't show up to meet him because that's when the guy from To Catch a Predator comes out of a <laughs> side room and says, "What are you doing here?" <laughs> that's true. Yeah, you never think that's going to happen twice. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh, so frustrating. <laughs> oh my God! I can't believe I fell for it again. Um, and then the last one's just really quick. Um, uh, she had this, uh, in the book it says, make this your mantra, I'm never to anything for anything. And that's the idea of like, just not putting yourself in some box that, you know, I'm, you know, I, I, I'm too old to wear this, say. And in my case, um, I had bought this skirt uh, a number of months ago, and I... I just thought it looked too slutty, and mm -hmm. so I never wore it. But um, tonight I've decided I am slutty enough to wear this skirt. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so I'm wearing this. I'm wearing the skirt. But let me just. Are, I, I mean, are it, you? It, let me ask this: Are you happy with your decision? <laughs> that sounds very loaded. I just mean like because. Right. These, you're doing a lot of daring stuff this week. I, I want to know how it's going. Um, <laughs> no, here's, here's the thing. Like, I, it is actually, I keep having to pull it down. It's this for the radio audience. It's kind of sparkly, and it's, and it's short. And, um, and th that gentleman enjoys it. Yes. Um, but, uh, uh, but, but, but here's what I did. I, w I think my rule is I brought a backup skirt. So, so live with abandon, but bring the backup skirt right. for when you abandon the whole living with abandon idea. Right. Absolutely. Courtney Hameister, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Karen. So, so, Karen, I mean, you, you wrote this book. You lay out all these really great ideas. Have you been able to implement them in your own life? No, of course not. That's why I wrote the book. <laughs> 
No, no, of course not. I, I never live with abandon or follow my whims. I have plans and plots, and, and but but this is this is why, why not apply write. it to your own life. Hmm? Why not apply it to your own life? Because how do you get a book written if you live with abandon and follow your whims, Luke? <laughs> No, no. Um, the last rule is every woman should have a blowtorch, and I do have I'm a blowtorch. I'm so glad torch. torch was the last part of that <laughs> sentence. <laughs> I'm sorry, you're you saying? You never know when you might need to make some nachos. I mean, you can sort of set aside that. It tastes a little like acetylene, but it's very handy. Or um, creme brulee is the other... Um, Thing that you might use a blowtorch for. So that's your takeaway from writing this whole book, inspiring millions, is have a blowtorch. You might need to make oh, nachos. Every woman must have a blowtorch, yes. Karen Carbo, ladies and gentlemen. The book is Julia Child Rules, Lessons on Savoring Life. You are listening to Livewire, where four out of five inmates in Russian prisons agree it is the best show to play during quiet time. <laughs> hey, if you're going to be in Portland on November 16th, join us here at the Alberta Rose Theater. We're going to have guest comedian Dana Gould, Late Night with David Letterman writer Steve Young, Bitch Magazine writer Sarah Merck, and the band Portugal The Man will be here, among others. Visit livewireradio.org for information and tickets. Livewire is sponsored in part by Whole Foods Market, who would like to remind you that mushrooms are very much in season, people. Like, you could throw a rock and potentially hit a mushroom. But if we're being honest, that is a very inefficient way of getting your mushrooms. Why not go to Whole Foods Market, which has a wide selection of organic and locally sourced mushrooms that are right there on the shelves. No stones required. In fact, they don't want you throwing rocks in the store. They're going to ask you to leave if you do that. So seriously, don't, though. I'm, I don't want to make it weird, but you can't do that in the store. More information available at WholeFoodsMarket.com. We'll be back in just a minute. Livewire presents Craigslist for sale ads that are really cries for help. Works, Trivac, Combo, Leaf Blower, Mulcher, Trimmer, Edger, Sweeper for sale. Used about 20 times on yard on Saturdays last summer. Trimmer auto feeds without bumping. Blower reaches up to 120 miles per hour to clean up areas of leaves quickly and repeatedly. Purchased before realizing that the earth is a devastatingly cruel mistress, dropping her endless leafy bounty, then rebirthing said bounty in a Sisyphean cycle that only serves to remind us of our own mortality. <laughs> Bag capacity is 1.5 bushels, but who gives a crap? 
$3 OBO. Brand new sewing embroidery machine. Never used. What a deal. Brother's sewing and embroidery machine, model number SE300. It comes with a foot pedal and power cord and is like new. And when I say like new, I mean that all that's happened to this machine is that it's been unboxed and placed gingerly on the work table I bought last January when I told myself I was going to get my life together and start sewing some of my own clothes. Because when you look at those denim vests at Dress Barn, the first thing you think is, geez, I could sew that. And I could put some multicolored daisies on the pocket. And then when I was working at the DMV, I could just look down at my vest and I'd feel the sense of calm come over me like I was in a field. But then, you know, CSI Miami comes on and that seems important. As far as wear and tear, it's been stared at repeatedly by me and my husband flipped it off once. $60 are best offer. Bundle of Sharpies. I have 22 unused Sharpies for sale as a bundle. 17 fine black, two fine blue, three fine brown. You know how sometimes you think you're going to need a lot of Sharpies and, and then you don't? That's what happened here. $17 or best offer. This has been Craigslist for sale ads that are really cries for help. Sean McGrath, Andrew Harrison, Laura Bay Smith. All right, folks, they're back. Please give a round of applause for Old Light. Thank you.
Hell yeah. That's Old Light, and that is our show. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thanks to our guests, Karen Carbo, Peter Bagg, my parents, and Old Light. Our house band is Ralph Huntley, Jim Brunberg, and Dave Jorgensen. This show is made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, Laughing Planet Cafe, and Burgerville. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art, the Oregon Arts Commission and National Endowment for the Arts, and listeners like you find beautiful people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by America's best hotel the Hotel Deluxe in Portland. Our media partners are KUOW 94.9 FM in Seattle, Oregon Public Broadcasting, and kink.fm. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is also produced by Courtney Hameister and Jim Brunberg. Our sketch comedy troupe is Sean McGrath, Andrew Harris, and Laura Faye Smith. Head writer Courtney Hameister with show writer Sean McGrath, Jason Rouse, and me. Our guest writer of this show was Alex Falcone. Sound effects by Jason Rouse. Our technical director is Jonathan Newsom. Our engineer is Graham Nystrom. Stage management from Will Fernandez. Special thanks to Revival Drum Shop. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. For more information about the show or becoming a member of Livewire, check us out at livewireradio.org. And you can download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. And find us on Twitter and Facebook at Livewire Radio. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week. I'm Luke Burbank. See you then. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.